Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. The first brand you, Tim Armstrong, remember having an imprint on you? Fortune Magazine. Holy cow. How old were you? Uh, I was probably 13. I used to get it in my house in Littleton, Massachusetts. And I used to read about all the business people in the world and all the creative ideas and all the companies and all that stuff. And I, you know, I almost studied that stuff as much as I studied my English homework. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Tim Armstrong, formerly uh, the head of sales for Google, the CEO of AOL before it sold to Verizon, and now he's starting up a new company called DTX and Unbox. In this conversation with Tim, we went back to the beginning. We covered what Tim learned from his early career experiences when he bumped around a bit before going to Google. And we also talked about the extraordinary relationship we had at Google. We talked about what it's like to be acquired by a large company when AOL sold to Verizon. And we talked about leadership lessons from his father and from so many other people who were his mentors. It's a very personal discussion, a very poignant one. Here's my conversation with Tim Armstrong. Tim, I kind of feel like you're part brother and part son because we have a long history together right we're kind of inextricably linked for 20 years so do you remember the first chapter in our brother slash son relationship yeah you know the first chapter jim and i feel the the same way i by the way thank you for considering me a son because i feel like that uh that means i said brother slash son. i have a lot more to basically you've been a very good teacher so i uh I really appreciate that uh, being that part, how close you are, uh, how close we've been. When we first met, I think it was under a um, situation where you were the CMO of the largest. Uh, and new, uh, new relatively new, 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 right? New and the CMO company was not Gamble. doing terribly well. Yeah, and you guys were uh, really thinking about the future uh, overall, and I was at Google. And, also uh, new. Also new and trying to figure out what we were doing also. I think, you know, when you look at both companies today, you think, oh, you know, everything's been uh, been. And you amazing. were how old when you uh, went into Google? I was 29. But when we met, I think it was around the same real purpose behind it, which was, you know, how do you make Procter & Gamble grow? And then at Google, we were trying to figure out what our business was literally at the time period. And I think when I met you, um, we were really struggling to figure out how do you go from being a small, fast-growing company to be something that could be more substantial to a company like Procter and Gamble. And you know, I think our relationship really started honestly with me asking you for help um, and bringing you out to Google and having you really teach you know Google something that I, me or Larry or Sergey, Eric or Omid or all the people there probably couldn't teach the company. And I think you were a huge 
reason for our kind of pivot and success in advertising. But more importantly, I think, you know, I, for one thing for me is I'm a big person on the average of five. The people you spend your time with mm -hmm. are the people you become. And for me, that yep. was a seminal moment of meeting you and getting able to spend a lot of time with you, which we've done, you know, consistently over the last 20 years. And, and that's thank you for that, by the way. That's been a huge addition to my life and, and to everyone I work with because your lessons have gone to everybody else I know. You're making me blush, but we can't see <laughs> that. We can't see that on a podcast. So no, it was it was remarkable, and and you obviously helped PNG in a massive way understand the digital world, search, and uh, and and what became a great partnership continues to this day, which I'm very proud about. But then let's go to the second chapter. So you left Google kind of abruptly. You joined Time Warner at the time as head of AOL, and then shortly after. You spun that out, became an independent, publicly traded company, and that became our second chapter. I think it's interesting for our listeners. You had one of the best jobs in the world at Google, and the company was still really trending. And you left to go to maybe the world's toughest tech turnaround, AOL. Why did you do that? You know, my whole career, and it started when I was when I was younger, um, was been really built on on two things. One is um, risk taking when I felt like I needed to take risk. And the second one, it really is learning. I, I think that's the one I think I talk to a lot of younger people about is I essentially always have changed when the learning curve has gone down. And I think that that's from a whole bunch of early, you know, stuff in my childhood and education and some mentors I had uh, early on. But the jump from Google to AOL was also because I, I saw the world changing again. I saw content and some of the things that, that had today look obvious that, mm -hmm. that needed to happen in terms of the internet space. And the second thing is that I'm a big person in terms of life journey and adventure. And, you know, I, you know, what I believe is you take one spin around this world, maybe you come back at some, something else at some point. But, you know, in, in my, my viewpoint is you, you have one spin around the earth and you might as well take that spin and and also do it with people you really like. So I think, you know, you're one of the first people I talked to about the change and what I was doing and asked you if you'd help mm -hmm. and come on the board of AOL. Um, and I think that was meaningful also because I got to do something really challenging with a really great group of people um, and people that I cared about. I cared about the company. I cared about the future of the brand, all those things. And we did that together. And there were some really hard times and some really good times. Um, but looking back on it, well, I would not have traded anything um, other than what I did to do the, to make that, that change. And I always encourage people to take chances and risks and go with really what your gut and your learning curve feels like. And, and that was something that was a great journey and, and something we did together. Yeah, you've always been great about, I think, dealing with fear of failure and risk. And I mean, when you called me to join the board of AOL, I remember you saying, I don't know if this will work, but I do guarantee a really interesting, diverse board and a very open board. I'm going to bring you, I'm an open book. I'm going to bring you my challenges, my problems every day, and I need your help. And this will be really interesting. It will be an interesting life journey. We're going to try like hell to make it work, but I don't know. But it, would you join me? So who can say no to that? <laughs> and it was it was fabulous, which yeah. which you know led up to the sale to Verizon, you know, five or six years later. So I don't want to go down that path too much today. But I do. Want, so many people do get acquired, and you got acquired into one of the world's largest companies with very established capabilities. So what are your lessons from being a smaller company acquired by a larger one to make that work, to integrate it? 
Yeah, yeah. They're never easy. Yeah. I get it. But what what are your lessons for others? I I think one is, you know, just taking a step back before you get acquired, which is, you know, what is your mission? What are the, what are the things you have to have in your bag of tricks to be successful? And at the time period, remember this at, at the AOL board meeting for really two years in a row, we carried around five priorities mm-hmm. and those five priorities were getting scale in uh in video audience and getting mobile um and then data and so from our viewpoint on the world we had a specific set of things we we knew and we couldn't bring a, a knife to a gunfight in the industry so we had to solve that issue as a company and we were turning the company around at the same time we got it back to growth but the pivot to the Verizon deal was really because Verizon sort of offered sure. solutions to those five things. Yep. And I think if you're an entrepreneur, you know, and people get offers all the time to sell their company or to partner and, and things like that. And I think the the reality is this is a big inbox outbox uh, piece. And I'm a huge believer in like a lot of things in your life come in through your inbox and you have to be careful about them. The real focus is what's your outbox? What do you need to get done? <clears throat> and for our company, our outbox were these five priorities. Yep. And when Verizon came up, it, that really did solve those those five things. So for for the leadership team, for the board, it made sense to basically do the Verizon deal at the time period we did it. I think once you sell your company, and, um, and I think th- this, I've talked to many, many entrepreneurs have come to see me about this because I know I've been through <clears throat> this journey. Um, there's two major changes that happen. One is like I was a huge shareholder. I put tens of millions of my dollars, my own money into AOL. So I felt like I owned about 7% of the company when we sold it. So I felt like a real owner. When you sell your company, you basically sell your ownership. Um, and I think that's a mental hurdle that you either decide to get over or don't decide to get over. When I sold to Verizon, I got over that hurdle. And I said, hey, what's Verizon's priorities? Let's make mm-hmm. you know those things our number one thing. The second thing is, you're in a new environment with new dynamics, new people, new culture, and um, and you know unless you grow up in the same household with the same parents, you go out into the world, and it's just like when you get married, you marry somebody um, if you want to get married, or if you have a partner, um, even if you have a best friend, you don't always have an eye to eye agreement on things, not intentionally, just because basically you grew up in two different environments. And I think one of the things over time I learned doing the Verizon deal. Um, was really about how do you kind of try to get the cultures to line up uh, correctly so that you can have the, a bigger outcome. And I think, you know, I learned that in Time Warner. I went from Google to Time Warner, mm-hmm. you know, to AOL, and we spun AOL out of the Time Warner. So I dealt with the Time Warner uh, culture, then the AOL culture. Um, and I'd been through a couple other mergers before I was at Starwave in the 90s, got bought by Disney. So, I, you know, this is probably my fourth time at the at the merger rodeo. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's something that, like, I realize that mergers and acquisitions are about two things. It's about vision for the future, and it's about the people you work with. Mm-hmm. And I, if you can align those two things, you know, they the work really well. The rest takes care of itself. And I think that's, if you're an entrepreneur or a founder, you got to think about those two things. What's the vision for the future? And are these people that I want to spend time with? And uh, those people want to spend time with you. And, and that, that's the secret to success. Mm-hmm. So that's our second chapter together as brother son. So you have a third chapter, which we're going to talk about later. And and, why, and, and the big question is why you're doing this, which we're going to get. But I want right. to like take the tape back sure. to when Tim was a young man coming out of college. We have a lot of young listeners. They're very interested in how people get started, how they make decisions. So you bumped around a bit yeah. after college in some interesting areas. So I want you kind of quickly 
to go through your career, I'm going to prompt you sure. and give me sort of one lesson you got from that experience. So you graduated from Connecticut College with a double degree in econ and sociology, and then you taught high school kids in a summer program in Wellesley. So what's the lesson from that? That's the first thing you did, sounds like, out of college. Yeah, well, Wel- Wellesley College, I taught at this uh, this program called the um, Exploration Program, and it had the um, kids from all over the world, and it had some of the wealthiest kids in the world. I had some kids from royalty from the Middle East, and then I also had kids in the class uh, that were some of the poorest kids um, from around the country. So literally there's one one kid in my class in my dorm who only had one change of clothes the whole time he was there that summer. And I had another kid who was essentially probably a, a prince uh, from the Middle East. And so um, every day basically I was teaching economics is uh, – the great equalizer was the classroom. Um, and outside of the classroom, people had different status, you know, different friends, groups, all those type of things. But in the classroom, it was the great equalizer. And one lesson I took away from that was education is a very, very powerful um, lever in your life. And if I looked at the kid who only had one set of clothes and was from probably one of the poorest families in America to one of the kids who was from the richest you know, education was the equalizer. And that always stuck with me um, to this day, which is it, when you're at work or you're in an environment, at a school environment or things like that, you can't underestimate the power of someone's capacity to, to basically contribute, to be involved in those things. Because the kid who had one change of clothes in that classroom contributed as much or more than any other kid. But if I had taken you outside the classroom to look at them, you would have said that kid has got no chance, he's got no head start, he's got all those other things, but education was the great equalizer. And I think I walked away from that experience just with an amazing appreciation for education. The second thing was that was a leadership lesson, the two people who ran that program. Um, that program started with all the teachers in a circle, um, and you had to go around the circle and tell your most personal story um, uh, of your life to the other teacher. So day one, minute one, you're on the spot. And that was a real co- combination of like the culture of leadership and getting to know people. The the woman next to me, I can't remember her name. Her dad worked at General Motors uh, and I'll never forget the story. And when she graduated from college, he gave her the wrench that he used every mm-hmm. single day. And she went to Harvard um, every single day that he used on his job as like his gift to her from graduating from college. And I still get choked up thinking about that moment, but that instantly bonded the the leadership group of that, that school. Um, also, well, you, so you great, pulled that lesson lessons. forward because every AOL board dinner, you went around the table to kind of say, what are you most passionate about these days? And what are you looking forward to? Yep. And that kind of just changes the dialogue in the room opens up your mind gets everyone to know each other better yeah yeah we do so i carry do that, that every every single dinner that we do we do a question game in the new company i'm running all the companies i've run before that and then we do it in our personal lives also it's one of the things that we do with our neighbors and friends uh when they come over and i would say more people comment about that question game than almost anything else that we've uh that we've done uh, you went from there to a very brief stint at a mutual fund company. Is that even worth talking about? Uh, the only thing is I, I would say the lesson for that, and I, again, I tell younger people this lesson, is that there was a guy sitting next to me at that company. His name was Murph, and he was literally probably eight to ten times better at the job than I was. We, we sat three feet away from each other, and we were essentially in kind of like analyst program uh, dealing with people. And so after like three months, I went to my boss, and I was like, look, Murph is like ten times better than I am at the job 
And I think either I should leave or you should let me go because like if I stayed in this job for 15 years and it was me versus Murph, like Murph's going to win. And I, you know, basically this is just not what I'm meant to do. I don't enjoy it. Murph enjoys it. He's awesome at it. Um, and I think also that was another lesson of natural appreciation for someone's skill sets. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't, I didn't look at Murph competitively. I looked at him as like, wow, this guy is awesome. And to have the self-awareness that it's not you. Yeah, right. I mean, I, at the time period, I, I just, I just knew that like this was not something that I was probably meant to do. And instead of fighting it, like I'm a, but one lesson I learned in high school, just going back, is I had a, a teacher in high school named uh, Dr. Arlie Richardson, who used to be the head of um, the English school at Yale. He retired and then came back as a high school teacher. And it's a long story; I could go into it for a long time. But he taught me a lot of lessons in life. One of the lessons he taught me is I was at his house one day, rolling up a garden hose, and I was wrestling it, like you know, couldn't get it in this perfect circle. And those they never things. quite go that way. And and he he said to me, he said, Tim, you know, most things in life are meant to roll up naturally if you handle them correctly. And so he did the garden hose in a perfect circle in like two seconds. And he was like eighty, probably eighty-two years old. And so then he taught me how to do it. And that was another lesson for me, which when I was at that mutual fund job, I'm like, here I am like trying to wind this garden hose up in this job, which like, I'm, I'm just not good at this. And this guy Murph next to me is like the king of wrapping up the garden hose in the right way in the mutual fund area. So that was my lesson of like, you know what, this is not something that's naturally going to roll up the right way for me. So I need to go off and find something that will roll up the right way. And that's, that's really what I did. Then you jumped, a big jump for you, because it kind of defined your future, you jumped into media. And you started a financial newspaper called Beginning in Boston for college grads in Boston, and then went to Square Deal, another newspaper in Boston. So, and then you went to an internet magazine, the first one called I Way. So what are the lessons from that early foray into media? Yeah, well, one was, um, one thing I, I didn't, skill set I didn't know I had, but I learned during the newspapers. When we went to start the newspaper, the reason we started the newspaper is, I would. I lived in Charleston, uh, Charlestown, Massachusetts, and um, all the people there were sent, were my age. And when I went out at night or met people, I used to play basketball every day down in the Navy Yard. Um, everyone had the same problems. Like I would listen to people talk, and I'd be like, "Wow, every single person in my age bracket has the exact same issue, which is they don't know what they're good at. They don't know how to handle their financials. They don't know how to buy a car. They don't know how to do any of those things." So the newspaper we started was basically to address those issues and talk to people that age bracket. So we started the newspaper. There's a million lessons in it. We didn't know what we we're doing. So we, uh, we didn't well, have a great money. entrepreneur lesson, right? Yes. So you were listening, your antenna was up. Yeah. You said, this is a problem. These are people who need a solution. I think I might be able to create a business on that. Yeah. And we did. And it, and what happened was the, the first lesson we learned is when you go to create something and you have energy behind it, you're solving a real problem, people come to you. I called it like, you know, the universe comes to support you. So instantaneously, we got massive support. I talked to my uh, best friend from high school and to doing it with me. And we sold, I sold my car, I sold my surfboard, I sold my bike. Um, we bought a Quadra 650 Apple computer. We learned how to program the computer. We did special programming to mix the PageMaker with Newspaper Pro mm -hmm. together, uh, all those things. Um, we went out and we did editorial, we sold advertising. And during that journey, we were competing with a newspaper in Harvard Square called The Square Deal. And um, there's really funny stories about The Square Deal, but they used to hand it out to Harvard students and BU students, and it had all kinds of coupons in it and information in it. But the founder of that was a husband-wife team, and we used to compete with them over time. And the, the owner of that died suddenly from a heart attack. 
and his wife came to us and said, you know, my husband has been watching you guys like stumble your way to uh, getting your newspaper going and those things. And even though we compete against you, my husband would want you guys to own the square wow. deal because he, he loved, he literally had so much respect for how much risk you guys were taking those things. So they sold us the square deal for essentially not, not, not much. Um, so we then were kind of running both things at the same time and then eventually focused just on the square um, deal, which we our office is right in Harvard uh, Square. And fun. Real, really, fun. I'll tell you one fun story from that is uh, I ran into, I was at a, a dinner um, out west and Casey Affleck mm -hmm, um, sure. used to work for us handing out the newspapers like while he was at uh, Harvard. So he, he came up and we had a great dinner. We were, were really laughing about those days <laughs> um, overall. But, but that, those le I, there's a million lessons from those days. But the biggest lesson I took away from that is, is you can figure things out. We didn't know anything. And every single day we just got better, slightly better, slightly better, slightly better, slightly better. We made more mistakes than anyone's ever made on, on planet Earth. But every mistake we made built a moat behind us because we had gone through that learning. And I think that's a really important lesson in life is when you take risk, you're going to make mistakes, but those mistakes become a moat that you can build around yourself as, as, a, as, a, as a bastion of knowledge, really. So the last one we're going to talk about is Starwave, which was kind of an internet portal way back, and you end up selling that to Disney. So the major lesson out of that, I mean, n nice acquirer, right? Nice to sell a company to Disney. Uh, major lesson for, for me on that front, uh, one was first time I'd worked with like an incredible group of people who all came from different um, backgrounds. I was the only person from Boston, but they had hired people, the best people from New York City, the best people of technology, people from Silicon Valley. Paul, you know, it was amazing. We used to go play basketball at Paul Allen's house every Tuesday night. Monica Sells would be there hitting, you know, hitting uh, ground shots. Um, I guess they had a relationship. And so it was this world. I, I came from a blue-collar town in Massachusetts called Littleton, Massachusetts. One stoplight, mostly farmland. And, you know, a few years later to be out at Paul Allen's house playing basketball, you know, just like a nice court, a really nice court. It was, it was a replica of the Portland Trailblazers court. Um, sure it was. And it was amazing. Um, but, but I'd say that the other lesson there was when I got there, I was the last person hired on the team and I had a sales and business development territory, which was, uh, Oregon, uh, Kentucky and Florida. And this is the time when the internet was just, grouping. Ju just starting. And, and so I called my dad the first night I was there and I'm like, dad, I'm like, I'm never going to make it here. They just gave me these three states and I'm, I'm not going to make it. And my, my dad is like one of the most amazing humans just from his background and childhood and what he went through to get to, to where he was. And about a half hour later, a fax lit up in the office and he sent me the Columbia HCA, the big hospital chain um, earnings report. And he wrote on the front of it, this is one of the largest companies in America. Why don't you read this and maybe you'll figure something out. So I started reading their annual report and Rick Scott, who was just finished being the governor of Florida, is mm -hmm. now our senator, was the CEO. And in his letter, he sort of mentioned that technology and the internet were coming and they were trying to figure it out. So I picked up the phone, cold called Rick Scott's office. And again, this is one of the top, he was named one of the top CEOs or sure. leaders in yeah. America uh, for, this, for the last century. Uh, I picked it up called his assistant, got her on the phone, and I said, look, this is Tim Armstrong calling from Seattle. I'm like, I'm doing internet things, and I explained a little bit about her, and she said, look, Rick, you know, as the CEO of a major corporation, you know, I can't just put you in. I said, look, the bottom line, if he wants to do the internet, I know the internet, and I'd love to talk to him. And she's like, you know what? He's always talking about that. Let me put you on hold for one second. Boom. Two minutes later, this is Rick Scott. 
he said, if you can be in Nashville tomorrow, I'll meet with you. So I left to the airport, flew down to Nashville, met with Rick. We did the largest deal that was ever done on the internet um, at that time period. And, um, Which was over a million bucks. It right? was over a million bucks where all the yeah. deals at that time were like a couple yeah. thousand. Right. Um, so this would be like doing today a deal for like a billion dollar, billion dollar ad deal type thing. Good and, for Rick. Good for you. Yeah. But, but also that was another lesson. Rick ended up being one of the most amazing people because I went to work for him after afterwards for a little bit. But just an amazing leader, visionary, but also just super real. And I think that was a huge lesson from StarWave um, over time. So last uh, job that I want you to comment your major lesson, you coach lacrosse. What's the major lesson there? You know, uh, coaching lacrosse, something I, I still do. I just coach this season again for my daughter's team. Um, I, I think coaching, the coaching lesson is that people want real feedback and people respond to real feedback. And I think there's been years where like the coaching has really made a difference for kids. Um, and those differences are like there, there was one couple girls on our team this year that never played lacrosse before. And by the end of the season, um, one of them in particular was like, I told her dad, I said, look, your, your daughter, her name's Lily. I said, you know, Lily's turned out to be one of the best players on the team. And she has such natural skill sets for the position that I think it wasn't wasn't the coaching, it was letting her be the player she could be and just kind of guiding her in the right direction, giving feedback. Um, I was assistant coach this year, but even when I was then head coach, I think one of the things is to zone in on individuals and give them super um, you know, direct feedback. And that's something I take to the office every day also. Like I have a lot of young people who, who work with us and they're fantastic. And I feel like my job is to guide them, coach them in the right direction. That's a walk through Tim Armstrong's life. And we're going to get to your current life in a moment. But I now want to flip into the world of marketing and the world of CMOs, which your current, I think, um, your current initiative is all about that. But I want you to start with how many CMOs do you think you've worked with in your career? Well, you know, I was about like a month ago, I was calculating. Somebody asked me how many companies they thought I visited over the last, you know, 20, 25 years. And I think the number is probably around 10,000. So I, I <laughs> in my, con my contact database, I have about 18,000 work um, contacts. So, uh, so, so a lot, um, a lot. And I so do you could argue no one knows CMOs or senior marketing people as well as Tim Armstrong. You could argue that. Well, I, could I, argue that. I might be, I might be more dated now, but, but it's at a time period, I think there was a time period where if you would ask me any CMO at any company, I probably knew for the top 250 companies, just about everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, you're certainly yeah. in touch with them at AOL. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, which is a few years ago. So I want from your database, uh, describe to me the ideal CMO. What are they good at? What do they do? Where do they spend their time? You know, first, I think the CMO position is uh, what I call a high skill position or a skill position. I think all companies have five or six skill positions. It's anyone who talks to all your employees, might be the head of HR. It's uh, anyone who's running all the technology you do or, or data things. That's a skill position. The, the CMO position is, you know, uh, is really, I think, one of the most important positions um, that a company has for the entirety of the company history from the time it starts till the time it ends. Hopefully it never ends. But the CMO position becomes the embodiment of the personality of the company. Olivia Oshray is our CMO. She's here with us uh, today. Um, I just sent a note to Olivia this morning, and we've been going back and forth And this, is for the new company we started is um, if the company were a person, 
what would you want the personality to be and what were the things, the attributes you would want someone to associate with it? And I think the world's best CMOs are able to create um, really a living, breathing personality for a company and, and, and an operating process that allows that personality to be consistent no matter what field uh, is happening at the time period. And I, I think if you think about like the work you did at Procter & Gamble, or the work you know, Kristen Lemkow does at J.P. Morgan Chase, or some of the other really well-known you know CMOs over time, they've essentially created a personality for the brand that weathers all situations like a person does. And when you see a consistent person that you really look up to, they they are consistent regardless of what the situation is. It might be really good or really bad. They consistently manage that persona and the way they go about the world the same way. And I think great brands and great CMOs. Um, do that as well, and that's a very, very hard skill set. I don't know if you agree with that. That kind of underlying. That's no, a beautiful premise. way to put it. It's a beautiful way to put it. I mean, every company is nothing more or less than the sum of its employees' behavior. Yep. And if the CMO can be a role model for that, and you know, I was just with the CEO and CMO of Georgia Pacific last week, and you know, a couple of their brands are not doing as well as they'd like, and his message to the organization was, it's all about making a difference in the lives of the customer. And understanding them, being empathetic, never forget that. No matter what the business situation is in your brand, always, always be working to solve the problems and make the lives better for your customers. Yeah. Great message from someone, yeah. right? Yeah, no, amazing. And also, I think the CMO job has changed a lot. I think that even the time we spent together when I was at was at Google, that was really the first time the CMO job collided with the data Absolutely. Um, job. And I think that collision has has required the CMO job to fundamentally change, which is it's not just okay to be awesome at marketing or communications. You have to be awesome at science and data. And I think that really when we spent our formative time together, when we were getting to know each other, it was about that, that mm -hmm. collision. And I think the great CMOs today basically are able to pedal both sides of the bike, which is creative and data. They welcome you know, the collision. And they and by the way, they don't just yeah, they, they welcome they want it. Mm -hmm. And they understand that that makes their their job better and the company better. And I, I think that's a big change for the CMO, you know, role. So when you are in a meeting with a CMO, how can you tell quickly that this is an exceptional CMO or this is a CMO who's struggling? What are the signs? Um, you know, I'll uh I'll use you as an example, Jim, is when you came out to Google, and this is something I watch super closely when I go to meetings, is the amount of time they talk versus listen. I think that's that's numero uno. I'd say the second piece is, do they know what they're trying to get at? Do, do they come with an outbox? Um, and I'm gonna I'm, I focus a lot of my time on outbox related stuff. So like, does the CMO know the problem they're solving and what, how they want to solve it and are they looking for creative. And I think the great CMOs essentially are good at one thing is I think the CMO job done really, really well because you're in a powerful position that other companies want to deal with you all the time, the great CMOs actually get other companies to work for them. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm guessing, you and I have never talked about this, but I'm sure there's times where you're flying back to Cincinnati from Mountain View where you were like, I now have uh, 50 engineers and 20 product people and 100 people from the Google sales team working for Procter and Gamble. That, in sense, you were kind of, uh, you know, puppeting is the wrong word, but you you laid out very clear issues you were trying to solve, and essentially put us to work on it. 
And I think that is what great CMOs do. If you look at a CMO, I wonder if you looked at their own organization inside the company. The thing I'd be more interested in is if I did a kind of satellite view of all the companies they deal with, how many people those other companies are working for the CMO's agenda. And I think great CMOs are able to get their agendas on other companies' um, work product sheet and almost have an out external workforce that's super powerful because you don't have to hire all those people. All those companies will work for you to get your agenda across. No, I felt that very clearly from Google. And there's a lesson in that. You know, The early discussions between P&G and Google were not about the transaction. The questions you asked us and yep. me were what business problems are you trying to solve? Yeah. What are your challenges? What don't you understand? What's keeping you up at night? The classic question. And you said the business will come later. If we can help you with that, yeah. and that came from you, it came from Eric, it came from everyone, then uh, then we can build a business relationship. Yeah. But that's why you were a great partner. And I think, to my, I'm sure they still are today. Yeah. Because it, it's it, a curious, customer-focused organization. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. And, you know, Jim, I think the, the lesson from that experience was a great lesson for CMOs is we came together with your knowledge of how to, a company that's been around for a long time and has a very good flywheel, has a flywheel of right. um, solving a problem, innovating, scaling, and going yep. back to that flywheel over and over. I don't, I don't know exactly what they call P&G, but mm -hmm. it seemed like that yep. was a flywheel that you, that you had constructed. The second piece is that Google had a lot of horsepower and data and searches and all, all those things and connecting those things together, which is for us at Google looking at how um, P&G and Walmart, your relationship and how that relationship worked. And then we mimicked, you helped us yep. learn how to mimic that indeed. relationship. And the entire Google Salesforce was set up off of Procter & Gamble's relationship with Walmart and the specialist and, and, the, mm -hmm. and the service and, and those things. And that, that really was kind of a gift that got given in both directions in that relationship. And, and I think that was really powerful. So tell me the coolest collaboration you've ever had with a CMO, except ours. Uh, boy, um, we, we've had a, a bunch over the years, but I would say like probably one of the... Um, the funnest collaborations we did was actually a combination collaboration when we took over AOL was doing the artist program where we wanted to inject creativity into, uh, into our company as a, um, really a creative shop. It was symbolic. It symbolic. was a very symbolic yes, thing you we'd did. We signed a yeah. partnership with 150 artists. We yeah. did the AOL logo. Yeah. And then we started taking the creativity from that and spilling into a uh, video and I think, you know, we partnered with a number of companies uh, like uh, Coca-Cola and General Motors and companies like that to essentially bleed the creativity from the artist community into our content, into video on the front page that those companies basically helped us bring real stars to the AOL platform again. So we launched the first video products, remember, on on AOL and you know the first three first two days we had uh, Elmo and we had Barack Obama, and um, I remember combo. I remember ca calling those partners and sponsors because they believed in us early on while AOL was turning around, and you know those partners were basically involved with us in the ground up turnaround of AOL. 
believed in the creativity, took the risk on the magic and the art and bringing you know life to video on the internet in a different way with different types. We have met Matt Damon, I think was number three. So I, I think those type of collaborations that are built in the in the real creative genre but turned into super scaled video products and services. I think it was great for them. They got tons of scale and reach um, around great, great people. And for us, it really changed the face of AOL for the consumer base. So if I drop you into a large company now as CMO, let's just take a company, Coca-Cola, right? They just announced earnings today, very good quarter. Yep. But let's drop Tim Armstrong in as CMO of Coca-Cola. What would you do in your first three months? So the first thing I would do is I would, I would do th three simple things. I would write down tailwinds and, head, uh, tailwinds and headwinds. I would take the P&L from the company and I would go through every major division and I'd look at what's growing and what's not growing and then figure out why it's growing and why it's not growing. So I'd, number one is start with data and look through those. The second thing is I would look at the headwind um, areas and say, what are these, are these headwinds internal headwinds or external headwinds? Like, and I'm, I'm guessing at Coca-Cola, I'm guessing external headwinds are like when the documentary Fed Up came out, like and people didn't want, didn't want the sugary drinks, that probably created a headwind. Um, I would figure out where the future is on the headwind businesses and can you pivot the marketing and the product and work with the product team to pivot that. The second thing I would do is, is look at the tailwind areas. Like what are the places where there's groups inside of Coca-Cola that have really done an amazing job um, getting in the tailwind uh, areas behind the brands? And um, you know, I, one example I know just because we're uh, an, an investor in it is uh, Irish Nova, uh, which is uh, – a company, the drink company that we're invested in, people know as Dirty Lemon as the consumer mm -hmm. product. You know, Coke invested in that. We co-led the round with, with Coca-Cola recently. That's an area where Coke is actually leading um, in terms of tailwind areas. So if you wanted to spend your time, you could spend a lot of time on the headwind areas or you can spend a lot of time on the tailwind areas. I would say you spend immediately most of your time on the tailwind areas and then you give really hard projects to people internally on the headwinds to try to turn those reds into green. Second thing I would do is I would do a 90-day roadshow mm -hmm. to all of the offices and all of the customers. And the only question I would ask uh, is um, how can we do better? And just see what in intake that. And at the end of it, I would I would do a like a kind of a presentation of the headwinds and tailwinds. I do a presentation with all the employee and customer feedback was. And then I would ask the organization as the last step, what are the big ideas that could break through um, to basically position Coke for the next set of values and generational things that are happening? And then I would run a process over the next two years that didn't change, which are what are the five biggest ideas? Let people test and run those things. And at the end of the two years, hopefully Coke would be repositioned um, into majority tailwind areas versus headwind areas. And th that's how I think about it. But I would start with intaking tons of data, like just start, start with data and then, and then start with and then get to people and then get to really soliciting, use the combined brain power of big ideas. I You'd know. be a good CMO, Tim. But I don't, I don't even, yeah. That was on the spot. I hope that's the right answer, <laughs> wrong answer, brother. Well, actually, when I was asked to be CMO of P&G many years ago, I did pretty much what you just talked about. But one other thing I did, which I think is really important, I went and visited in person every living ex-CEO of P&G. Oh, that's a great idea. And I asked them, what do you think I should do to help the company be successful? Yep. And the data was, it's some sometimes conflicting, right. but it was all massively helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really helpful, actually. So, um, 
So listen, um, I want you to talk a bit about you. You've had an amazing career. You're you're still in your late forties, so you're still a relatively young guy. You could just right now be coaching lacrosse, enjoying surfing, whatever it might be, but you chose to start up another enterprise. So I want you to talk about why. Kind of why is Tim Armstrong doing this? What makes you tick? And tell me a bit about your life now. What what's the portfolio of Tim's life after you've left, you know, AOL, Oath, Verizon Media, and you're kind of relaunching some things or starting some things. So why and what? Yes, but the why is very important. There's uh, the the why. There's two whys. One is professional. One's personal. On the on the professional side, um, I I don't think the most important and valuable company on the New York Stock Exchange should be the New York Stock Exchange. I think that the internet evolved and and I was really kind of there at the beginning of it where it was going to be distributed, democratized, um, add a lot of value in an ecosystem. And I think where we've ended up is like we're in a place where there's like the 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 companies in the middle of the internet have sucked the value from the ends. And I, I worked at one of them. And so I, I, I respect those companies. They've done an amazing job organizing things and getting social going and all those other things. And I think those companies are going to do incredibly well for, I can't see the end of it, how well they're going to do. Um, I think one of the things though that's an opportunity around that is to have companies and people develop things on the edges again in the ecosystem. So professionally for me, and again, I'd same thing I would say to you when we, we talked about working at AOL together, I don't know if it's gonna work. Um, but I do know this. I do know that consumers wanna make more conscious choices about where they go and what they do. And I know that brands wanna have direct customer relationships and want to be able to get product information and really work with with uh, consumers more directly. And so what we're building today with DTX and Unbox is a thin middle. And we're trying to push value out to consumers and out to partners. And uh, our viewpoint of the world is that the ecosystem is better than a platform-driven environment over a long period of time. And we're just starting that journey. We're super early, but that's what we're building, um, number one. Number two is on the on the personal side, you know, I, you know, I'm I'm a big person. You you know this in terms of like personal mission mission statements and those mm-hmm. things. I have a personal mission statement I live by and and have goals I write down every year and those things. And and Can I you share what the personal mission statement is. Yeah, the personal mission statement. It's posted up in my closet. I look at it every morning um, when I get ready. And the mission statement basically says in, in summary. Um, be a great father, be a great husband, be a great friend uh, to people. And then second is create environments where the world's most talented people can have their talents recognized and rewarded. So I, I basically get up every single morning thinking about how do I have other people be super successful, find them, help them, you know, push that, uh, push that agenda. And, and in my world today, that fits perfectly with what we're doing at DTX and Unbox is we want to go find the founders, the companies, the people that want to basically have a bigger stage and, and help people. And that's really what we're, what we're doing. Um, so on the personal side, when I took a step back, I was like, look, I'm, you know, 48 years old today. Uh, last year I was 47 when I was really in 46, when I started making these decisions and I thought to myself, you know, I've had an amazing run and chapters, both really good things, really challenging things. Like I'm, I, I honestly feel like as a human being, I'm not sure how much more I could have done up until this point to challenge myself and do things that are important and do things I care about. And there was a moment where people like board of directors were calling me, other companies were calling me to go run other bigger companies, sure. doing that type of stuff. And essentially I made the decision 
uh, for me personally, which is what legacy and message do I want to send my kids um, at the end of the day? And how do I want to design my life? And I have a lot, I have a personal board of directors, which, which you're on, uh, Jim, of course, but a lot of the people on my personal board of directors have designed their lives over time for what their values are and what their purpose is and those things. And I just made the decision, I was actually at a conference last summer and Barry Diller got up to speak and uh, it was with my wife and Bar- Barry Diller said at the conference, you know, when he, he uh, had left Rupert Murdoch and he basically said, look, I was 48 years old and I wanted to go do my thing and, and I wanted to not, like basically he talked about being at a board of directors meeting where something didn't go well and then he walked out and was like, you know, it's time for me to do my own thing. And, you know, I was at the same thing and while Barry was talking, my wife was kicking my shin under the table and she was saying, hey, this is, this is exactly you. what you talk about all the time. And I had already planned to leave and Verizon knew I was leaving those things. But basically I knew at that moment here in Barry and Barry's been another mentor, person I look up to is I was like, look, the bottom line is win, lose or draw this is the right thing for me to do. And I think it's what we're doing is super highly risky, so it may not work. But by the way, when I'm on my final deathbed, whether that's in five minutes or whether that's in 50 years. I hope it's not um, five minutes. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, the bottom line is I will, the decision I made, and I have one other principle, I, I, love, I have a bunch of them, but I live by the principle of when you put your pillow on your head, you put your head on your pillow at night, you should have made the right decisions for thy own self be true mm-hmm. um, and treat people well and, and all the other things that come along with being a human in our society. And, and I think that I felt good going to sleep at night knowing I made the decision to go back at it again. Um, and I think it's the right thing for me to do, like what I'm about as a person, the message I want to send my kids and family. And really, you know, I, I want to also, I mean, we really do want to change the world to more of an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Like I want to see value get distributed uh, back out and democratized. Yeah. No, it's beautiful, Tim, that rant you just had, the beautiful rant. Um, tell me in a phrase or two what the purpose of DTX is and the purpose of Unbox. I mean, you just referred to it, but I would like, you, like to hear you say it again. At DTX, we want to be the most scientific and deep company in understanding direct-to-consumer everything. And the, the purpose behind the company is direct-to-everything. Mm-hmm. So the same reason I ask questions at dinner parties is because other people have knowledge sitting in chairs that would be helpful for somebody across the table. Like simple questions like what's, what's a book everyone should read? What's a product everyone should have? Those things sound super simple, but there's so much knowledge transfer there. And I think the more humans get direct connections to things, the more they're going to learn and experience the world much faster than with a whole bunch of things in the middle Mm -hmm. that don't add um, value. So DTX is built on that. Unbox is a sub brand. It's really our consumer facing brand at DTX um, is really built on making product introductions as exciting as world championships or uh, as exciting as your favorite rock musicians coming out is that the product people and the people doing companies work on innovation and they work on new products. We want to be a platform that brings directly the product knowledge, vision, and awesome new things in the world out to everybody. So when we talk about unboxing, that same feeling you get when you order something and you open the box and you feel amazing about it when you get it and you realize how much work went into the thing you ordered and how grateful you are to have it. Like we want to do that on steroids uh, for the world and for for companies and, and for consumers. And, and I, I think kind of sort of unboxing. Sounds internet. great. Sign me up. So what's a direct-to-consumer company you admire these days? 
you know, there's a there's a few. Um, one I would say is is we're not invested in, but we watch closely is is Peloton. I think that um, you know Peloton is a company that had to go through 400 meetings to raise financing. It was an idea that a lot of people didn't believe in. And I think John's vision of the, one of the founders and CEO of Peloton, when you hear him tell that story, it is powerful for you as a, whether you're a CMO or whether you're an entrepreneur to realize if you have a vision, how much work it takes to get that done. The second thing is I think Peloton, if you think about buying a $5,000 exercise bike, which you can buy at Walmart, that's not connected to anything and you sit by yourself and ride. And then you think about a Peloton bike that has a community around it, has product development features that go back to Peloton so the bike gets better and they learn more and more. They get to know you better as a consumer. You want to talk about the core fundamental of the direct-to-consumer economy, the product development cycle at Peloton versus a lifetime fitness. And I have a lifetime fitness machines at my house, so I'm not, I, li- mm-hmm. I like that company. But Peloton's product development cycle must be 20x more informed. Um, you know, another brand is Third Love and uh, David and Heidi, the founders of that, they just won Entrepreneur of the Year from Ernst & Young. They are amazing. You know, they compete with Victoria's Secret, which has, I think it's 12 or 14 sizes. They have 78 sizes. So if you want to feel like really good about yourself as a woman um, wearing, you know, undergarments, Third Love is your company. And they, not only that, but they went to China, spent a year working on the foam for the brand. So I, I think they are one of the companies that really represents why DTC companies are amazing in terms of the variety and sizes and, and those type of aspects. Well, Tim, I don't want to end this discussion. I want it to keep going, but <laughs> we do have to sort of end it. So I want to kind of end this nice reunion between you and me with a lightning round on some interesting topics. Sure. Well, a brand you cannot live without other than Peloton. You know, I have a whole bunch. I love this question. Um, I'll say Saks underwear. Super comfortable um, and uh, designed uh, really well. And I don't know. I, I'm like, I, I can't live without it. I can't. I, I love it. Also, I'd say You're vineyard, comfortable sitting there. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say Vineyard Vines is another mm-hmm. company that they're good friends of mine. The founder Ian and Shep. You know, they're two of my my personal board of directors people. But they they've done an amazing job. It's a great brand. I love the brand. Those are brands that I really appreciate and love. Your amazing wife's favorite brand. Oh, you know, my wife, uh, first of all, my wife is like a better consumer than I am, better parent, uh, better. <laughs> she's pretty much, she is, right? Yeah, she's pretty much better at everything. She's doing a new ADHD documentary, which is coming out next mm-hmm. year, which is totally another subject, but su- super important uh, for the world to, to see that. Um, you know, my wife is a huge promoter of women's uh, leadership. And I think that, you know, one of the projects she's been involved with is the Nantucket Project, which is another great entrepreneur, Tom Scott, who founded Nantucket Nectar, is a great friend of ours, both of ours. But she spends a lot of time on women's leadership. And every year at that conference, she brings, like she had Hope Solo, Abby Wambach. She has amazing people come with her. And that's a that's a gift that I think she gives the world and Tom Scott gives the world in the Nantucket Project. Um, but I think women's leadership as a brand, she, she brings that to other people's brands with a collaboration. And that that's pretty amazing. And the single person who's been most influential in your business career? I think there's been a, there's been an amazing amount of people that have been influential. And Jim, you're at the top of the list. David Bell's at the top of the list. There's a number of people: Howard Schultz, Ken Schnolt. There's there's an amazing amount of people that just have influenced me over time. Eric Schmidt, Larry and Sergey. But my dad, I think, is um, like I I always have this dream about him. Like I'm standing on his shoulders. I've had it since I was a kid that he's underwater and I'm standing on top of his shoulders. And I think it's because he had he had a, a, a tough childhood growing up. Went to serve in Vietnam. 
after that went into the the tech space and um and he's just been he's one of the most positive human beings um that I've ever met and I think that his lessons I've learned from him he used to drive me to every sports event everywhere I ever went and I I I I'm I cannot replicate I'm trying to with my own kids the amount of lessons that I learned from him. My mom is the same way. My mom's an incredibly hard worker. So I'd, I'd say both of them. I'd just say my my dad probably had uh, an imprint on me just from a life viewpoint and risk-taking and being happy with what you are and who you are and and taking chances. He's, he's just been an amazing mentor. I just talked to him on the way in here this morning with my son. I didn't know he was in the service. Yeah, know, so he what, served what uh, two tours in Vietnam. He, like, if you've seen the movie Apocalypse Now, he uh, used to every night take long-range Marines um, up the DMZ and drop them off. So, I mean, he was in you know live wow. fire, and I, he saw a lot of stuff. As a matter of fact, he never told us. I still haven't heard them. He's only told those stories once in his entire life to my family. I happen to be traveling. My, he told my two brothers for several hours the the stories but my older brother said to me wow he said you know you got to hear those stories but he doesn't like to talk about those things but he's just a great american great patriot and you know lived through things and saw things that just you know has just has no bearing in anything challenges i've ever faced and so he's super inspiring from that well make sure your parents listen to this yeah yeah i will so what do you read or listen to every day so I have a program I do called Meds, uh, which is I get up at 5 a.m. I do meditation, exercise, and diet basically um, every day. And then S is sleep, is I try to like regulate my sleep more these days. And um, I generally read uh, two types of things. One is uh, after I uh, meditate, I start with the Financial Times and I read about four or five newspapers every day just to kind of intake uh, the, uh, that type of news and information. And then the second thing is I generally always reading um, two books at the same time. And so I'm reading one book right now. I actually have to find that I have a second one I haven't started yet called uh, K129, which is about how the US government and the CIA and Hollywood. Um, stole a Russian submarine in uh, 1968 through 1970 that, that was the most advanced Russian submarine that that sank in the Pacific Ocean. And um, I like to read those books. I, I would I always recommend Nathaniel Philbrook history books mm-hmm. um, because I like to read those books about about how leaders innovated things and also just about um, decision making. I think decision making is a huge skill set. So a lot of the stuff I read is about that. Um, and then the last piece I do every day is thinking time. I have a schedule uh, on my time on my schedule every day just to think. And that, that's been a huge change. Um, so that, that's kind of like daily schedule and reading all packed into one answer. What series are you watching now on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu? Yeah, um, I just watched uh, Hip Hop Revolution, and I'm a huge hip hop fan. Yeah. I love hip hop. Um, and then the second one I just started is uh, Chernobyl. Um, if you just watch the first two series, mm-hmm. I think you'll see leadership lessons that you almost couldn't recreate. I don't even. I mean, that, I didn't realize how bad that situation could have been. Um, and there's both good leadership lessons and really bad leadership lessons. And I'm all, I'm only, I'm two, two series into it, but it's pretty, pretty impactful. Favorite movie of all time. You know, I would, I, I love the movie Miracle, um, mainly because of the, the coaching scenes and, and, uh, and those things. Uh, I think a wonderful life is also one just good, like got a lot of lessons in that. Okay. How would your three kids describe you? 
Um, I think they would describe me as probably creative and creative all the, all the time. I think two is that, um, uh, always emotion. Like I, my, uh, my kids, I think they appreciate it and don't appreciate it, which is when we go places, I'd want to have the full experience. And so it, I'm like kind of scheduled out like that. And the, the third is, I think is probably, um, you know, I work, I work hard. And I think that, that, that's also, that's a good thing and a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, there's times where I'm like super focused on work and I always tell them my three rules with them is be a great teammate, um, work hard and always show up. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes that drives them a little crazy. And, um, but, uh, but they, they probably, they probably do that. They'd probably say I'm fun. My wife calls me, <laughs> my wife calls me Disney dad. Um, <laughs> And so I, 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 that's why I said she's a better parent. I'm like probably slightly down the scale on parenting, um, which I, I'm trying to get better at actually. I'm like actually spending a little time thinking about how I get to be a better parent, but I say I'm a fun parent. That's cool. My kids uh, share notes about me, so they call them dadisms. So every time I say something really strange or really funny, they keep a note of that. So there's a whole bunch of dadisms. Oh, I bet there are. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. there's some marketing lines yeah, in yeah, the for sure, household. For sure. So Tim, last question: What are you really looking forward to in the next twelve months? You know, the next twelve months, I'd say one is um, I'm super looking forward to my wife's documentary that mm -hmm. should be coming out around. Is there you know, a distributor yet? Uh, they're not yet. They have a lot of interest um, in it because it's a big topic mm -hmm. and it's, it's touching yep. a lot of people in America. Um, so I'll be interested to see how that comes out. I'd say the second thing is that the team. I'm generally someone who's very externally driven, but I'd say this is the most amazing team. And I we've I've been on some amazing teams. The team we have at Unbox and DTX is the most amazing group of people. You know, I've worked with uh, so far, and I'm gonna be really amazed to see what they come out with and and what what happens with the company over time. I think we have the right company and the right idea at the right time, and it's gonna be about how we work together as a team. So I I, I feel like I'm both a participant and leader there, but also I'm, I'm, I'm viewing a next generation of leaders at the company who I know are gonna go off and do amazing things with us and probably over a long period of time at other things. So I, I wanna make sure the next 12 months for them is like really amazing. And I wanna, one, one, of, my, one of my goals this year is you have to um, give feedback to get it. I just heard that phrase a few weeks ago and I, I love that. So I'm trying to be really direct with people giving feedback and, and hopefully you know that's something I can help coach them and, and we'll have a w winning team, but also people have winning lives, winning careers, you know, based on what we all figure out together the next 12 months. It's really, what a really, blast. really fun time, yeah. What a blast. It's been amazing. Well, Tim, this has been a joy and a gift and I can't thank you enough for coming into the studio and being with us and being with me. Awesome, Jim. It's good to see you, and you've been a great mentor and friend. I know we'll be that for the rest of our lives, so it's really special to be on your podcast, and I'm so happy you're doing it. It's amazing. So that was my conversation with Tim Armstrong. I know Tim well, but what I really loved in this conversation was how he gets up every morning, opens his closet door, and has his personal mission statement on the closet, which he reads and thinks about every day to stay focused on the impact he wants to make as a husband, as a father, as a business person, and as a community leader. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.